0: Welcome to Stories Behind the Stars podcast, dedicated to honoring the fallen heroes of World War II. Welcome, everyone, to the Stories Behind the Stars podcast. Tonight, I have the opportunity to interview Dennis Dupra. He's in Alaska. And so... With that, would you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and how you found the project?
1: Hi, my, my name is Dennis Depra. I live in uh, Anchorage, Alaska. I've been in Alaska for almost uh, 25 years. I came up with the Army and I stayed. I was in the infantry up here as a platoon leader, and I was an enlisted soldier before that. So, and uh, the project, I had to be at work and listening to uh, some podcasts on my. Uh, phone and I just came across this one and I emailed Don and started working.
0: So my dad said that you focus mostly on Alaska uh fallen. So can you kind of share with us some of the fascinating research that you've been able to discover? Uh,
1: I, I I I have like three or four projects. My primary ones are Alaska um Alaska based the Battle of Attu out in the Aleutian Islands and then the Aleutian the war in Alaska and the Aleutian campaign in general, which lasted from June of '42 to uh, the close of the campaign in August '43, when they recaptured Kiska, so it's about two to three years of campaigning and, and involves at least one invasion and a lot of fighting on Atu, and a lot of air and sea action in the Aleutians. And and there's a family connection too. My wife is from the Aleutians. She's an Aleut, and um, her home village was bombed, and and uh, the PBYS used it as a base. To attack Kiska after the Japanese invaded, so there's a there's a there's a family connection too. And my old regiment when I came up to Alaska was the 17th Infantry, and they fought on that too.
0: So not very many people I feel like are very familiar with what happened there. So um, in your research, what are you finding is is stuff that people just don't know about.
1: Well, in general, I mean, it's not a well-known portion of the campaign for a lot of uh, other war for a lot of reasons. One is the military kind of downplayed it because it didn't it was kind of embarrassing. The Japanese put took part of the U.S. Ter- U.S. territory, and um, the campaign didn't go so well initially. Um, but some of the things people don't know is the Japanese did capture two American islands. Uh, a village was captured and carted off to Japan. Um, about ha- about forty-three Aleuts were taken there and the schoolteacher, um, about 18 died of malnutrition and neglect in Japan. Uh, the rest came back. Um, some came back to Lucian's and um, the school teacher she was in prison too. And her husband was ex- executed the day the Japanese landed. They took him behind the church and shot him. Um, and that started a long, very arduous campaign, a difficult campaign to retake those islands and uh, uh, to uh, kick the Japanese out. Um, One of the first stories I did is a guy named Leland Davis. He was a Navy ensign. He flew PBYs. Um, He flew them out of an island called Atka. And PBYs are a a seaplane, like a flying boat. And um, they used them as bombers, which they were more patrol aircraft than bombers. But they used what they had, especially when the war, when when the attack first started. Uh, When the Japanese attacked the Aleutians, it was the same campaign or same operation involved midway. And the, uh, the forces up here reacted as best they could. And they sent these PBYs out to bomb, bomb Kiska to try to take it back in an uh, event known as the Kiska blitz. And this, uh, uh, PBY got shot down over Kiska and the crew was killed and listed as missing action. And actually their bodies were recovered and found back in uh, 2008. So, um, um, they, uh, They uh, were. There was a guy studying from the University of Newfoundland up in Canada, and he came and he was studying rats of all things that were brought there by the Navy and other people in the war. And he discovered this wreck. They knew of the wreck, but it got lost over time. When the US and Canada retook Pisgah, they found it, marked it, and then they never got to the bodies because the weather closed in and it iced over and they never got back up there. And it was only found recently. And some of them are buried in. National cemeteries near their homes, and there's also some buried in uh, uh, Arlington too. And um, so that 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 I found interesting because he the day he took off, it was killed, and his crew was killed. They were they they departed my wife's home village. So and some of the planes that were shot up landed, and they were treated in the village school by the teacher and some of the aliens that hadn't evac- That didn't, I guess I'm getting too far into weeds here, but. Um, the villagers themselves were told by the school teachers and the people from the um, Indian Health Service or the Indian Service at the time to go hide. So they went to their fish camps. So most of them were away. And then the military ordered everybody evacuated because they were afraid of what happened on Atta. So the Navy sent a destroyer and they picked most of the people up, but not all of them because some were still at fish camp. And a PBY had to come back later and pick them up. And Atta itself was used as a base during the war to attack Kiska and Atta.
0: So you say your wife has a connection there. Is that what made you start to want to tell these stories? What got you going and writing them down?
1: Um, I, I think because Alaska is neglected often in the history of World War II. It's not well known. Um, she, We have that family connection uh, with her and my family. Well, but I served in the 17th Infantry, and they fought on Attu. So I, I that's kind of a connection we have. Um she knows descendants and people who originally were carted off to Japan because the Attu villagers, when they returned after the end of the war, the ones that returned to Alaska settled and a lot of them settled on Atka. The, the, it's the nearest island. And the Ale- Lucian chain, in case anybody doesn't know, is very long, very wide, a long distance. So Alaska itself is hard. I mean, people see it in a little map and a little cutout. But if you took Alaska full size and placed it over the lower 48, it would stretch from Florida, past California, from Louisiana up to close to Minnesota. It's it's pretty big.
0: Yeah, it's huge. So most of the names you've done are from those specific battles. Are there particular names that, as you've been doing the research, really stick out to you as things that people should know that these happened to these young men?
1: Well, atu itself was a very... Arduous battle because of the conditions it was set in. And the guys, they were the division that was chosen, the 7th Infantry Division, was chosen because they were available and ready. They had been training as a me- mechanized division, a motorized division. They turned in their vehicles, did amphibious training, and were shipped up there to fight. And a decision was made, probably not the best one, not to equip them for the conditions. And they didn't have a lot of gear to survive at. Two. At two is not like the Arctic. It, the Aleutians are a maritime environment, but the weather is severe. A lot of rain, a lot of wind. That time of year, you get a mixture of rain and snow and, and fog, and that's what they experienced. And, and the same thing with aircraft. They had a lot, you have a lot of losses with aircraft due to weather up here for World War II. Even today, there's still a lot of losses. Um, as far as stories on At two, there's a couple of interesting ones. I wrote a, a memorial for a man named Alonzo Atkins, he was a sergeant. And Sergeant Atkinson, um, he was part of F Company, which was 2nd Battalion, 17th Infantry. And they had a, after they landed on, landed on the 11th of May, they had a split off mission to go across a ridge. And basically they got isolated and attacked by, a, 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 by the Japanese, probably by a, a platoon slash company. And they were pulling back and he, uh, he went to help a machine gunner. There was a machine gunner trying to push these Japanese back or hold them off him. He was manning a light 30 cal. And if I don't know if your people realize, but I'm a, I am used to be an infantryman, so I, I know this. Machine guns operate better with a crew. It, you need one to feed the gun, one to man the gun and fire. And the guy feeding or somebody else helps direct and find new targets. And he was struggling to do all that, I'm sure and Atkinson went up there to help him and Atkinson got hit pretty bad. And another another soldier named Cunha from California went and rescued him and pulled him out. The connection is both Cunha and Atkinson were both posthumous recipients of the uh, Distinguished Service Cross, which is second highest award the Army can give next to the Medal of Honor. And the reason I find it interesting that both of them received it for that battle, Cunha survived longer he got Atkinson up to the top of the ridge with some medics, but they had to leave him. They couldn't carry him. So the medic stayed. They went to get help. They got broken up and engaged more Japanese on the ridge line. And then he got found by some MPs, and the MPs went to go find uh, Sergeant Atkinson. They couldn't, they found the medic, but not Atkinson. And the medic was riddled with bullets. Atkinson was found at the last day of the battle. Um, some interviews after the battle indicate the Japanese might have found them alive and killed them. No one was quite sure. But the, the uh, interesting aspect to this is when Atkinson died, there was another soldier, Lieutenant Beagle, in the 32nd Infantry, and he was wounded at the last day of the battle on the 29th when the, it was a climatic uh, bonsai charge, probably the first real bonsai charge the US experienced. There was some on Guadalcanal, but this was with an entire garrison got up and charged. And he survived it, but he was wounded. And he was recovering in the hospital. And he saw the, uh, uh, if you guys, obviously people see these newspaper accounts, you see the casualty list. And he saw the casualty list, and the casualty list had Atkinson's name. And he recognized the name, not because he knew Atkinson, because he p- picked off this dog tag, American dog tag, off a dead Japanese he had just killed, probably during the bonsai charge. And he mailed it to his mother. So I found that as an interesting pit of bit of human interest story that, that goes with it. And, and there's there's some others, um, like that one in the, the PBY one, and there was another one for a B-24 crew, right at the Kiska Blitz. Right after um, Japan attacked, the West Coast kind of f- freaked out, and a squadron of B-24s was rushed up to Alaska. And they went, they spent one night in Anchorage, flew from Anchorage to... Uh, a place called Cold Bay, which is still in use. It's a small, it's a giant runway with a small community built around the runway now. And the they went straight, almost straight, getting Alaska into combat, and they were shot down, and they were all killed. And uh, before they took off, they threw an experienced PBY aviator, uh, an Annapolis graduate named Hood on board from Texas. And what I found interesting that that when I was researching it, and the Japanese filmed it, the B-24 actually getting shot down is actually filmed off a Japanese warship, that attack. So that that I found was pretty cool. Um, obviously it's a tragedy, all the guys died, but um, in Alaska, um, World War II opened the state up. All the major infrastructure in the state, the initial foundation of it was almost laid in World War II by the military. Uh, the Alcan Highway, um, all the runways west of Anchorage, Most of the runways, I shouldn't say all, most of the major runways west of Anchorage were laid down by the U.S. Army or the Navy. And I lived on Kodiak for 12 years and that was a big hub during the Aleutian campaign. If you ever fly up to Alaska and you land in Kodiak or on Alaska, you're going to see revetments that you would see on a military base for fighter aircraft that are, you know, protect them from bombs. They're still used if people put their small planes in.
0: (laughs) Wow. So if you so, were, and there's
1: yeah. there's bunkers all over the place too, like on Kodiak or on Alaska, there are bunkers uh, mainly for coastal defense, but they're they're all over the island. And add to itself and Kiska, the remains of the war are still there. They're just sitting there.
0: As you've been researching and studying these these stories, do you feel like it's changed your perspective at all about the war, or changed maybe how you view or the world today?
1: Um. I, I think the, the 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 fact that the whole country was involved in it is a really aspect I don't think a lot of the public see nowadays, but it really was. It, it affected everybody to some degree. Um, um besides the add to an Alaska one, I, I do I went to the Virginia Military Institute. So I, I do some of them and I did the class of 41, the guys that were killed in the class of 41. And what struck me is all these guys were killed training and being pilots or bombardiers. Lots of them. Um, there's one guy kind of has a familial connection, too, on my side. He actually, and he's not—he's an American, but I think he failed flight training in the states. I'm not sure, but he wound up uh, going to Canada to join the royal and he joined the Royal Canadian Air Force, and he was pilot training in Canada, in a place called Moncton in New Brunswick, on the Mar- in the Maritime provinces. And where he trained uh, and flew, and he he eventually crashed and died in training, but he trained right across from where my I've got family that live. They owned uh, they owned a farm, they owned a large field, and during the war they had an ice skating rink and a cafe. And all these trainees for the Royal Canadian Air Force used to go over there. So I'm sure uh, this guy's name was Nash, and he he went to VMI. He didn't. I'm not sure if he graduated. I think he left beforehand. Um, he 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 would have known. He would have gone there, drank coffee or tea or hot chocolate, and skated with the French girls. I guarantee. I, I, they talk about those guys. Now my aunt used to do. She's passed away now. She lived to be about a hundred and two, but she used to talk about them coming to visit all the time because they opened up a little cafe. So. That
0: is so cool that you know that connection so far. Oh away, but then you, you can make that family connection that you wrote a story about someone that your aunt probably saw, maybe interacted, maybe not, yeah. you know, but that's, and so it's, that's
1: what I, I think the public should, you know, I wish that some people would see in World War II or maybe in school, because everybody, if you had family in the States or even overseas in another country, you probably have some connection to World War II, whether you realize it or not.
0: Yeah, right. It was, you know when you're like this boy from Texas is is killed in this bomber it's, and it, and it's he's from Texas what's he doing in Alaska right i mean that's
1: yeah and there's there's there, there's there's that. And, and and um like even in Alaska history um after the war some guys came back or stayed um homesteading was still going on up here after world war II. a lot of guys homestead some of the roads streets here in anchorage they actually named for people who homesteaded right after the war um, and like the Alcan Highway, um, a lot of engineers, Canadian and American worked on it. And a lot of African-American segregated engineer units worked on that highway. And some of the, I guess, first group of African-Americans to come to Alaska were these guys, these veterans. They came to the Anchorage area after the war because they could get land.
0: Wow, that's amazing. It's And it's really see the in the fine details how the war just changed everything in America, everyone. Not, it impacted us. So if you um, if you could tell anybody who's thinking about joining or signing up and, and being a researcher, one thing, what would you tell them?
1: Don't don't be awed or cowed by what you think the task is. It's it's not as hard as you think. I mean, I have a history degree, so in some ways it's easier. I mean, I know the background. But even if you don't know the background, um, if, if you read popular histories of World War II or you see you watch the TV shows. I mean, the good things about Band of Brothers and, and uh, the Pacific is they show the common soldier, and some movies do do that, but the common soldier doesn't get a big memorial or some way to remember. So this this thing about app getting an app so you can scan a, uh, a headstone and see a guy's story, even if it's just the bare minimum, at least it's something. Because um, a lot of guys, you know, they didn't have anything, and a lot of these guys were poor. In general, when I do this research. Um, how do I, the infantry guys, if I find a photo, I'm like, yeah, I got a photo. Most of these infantry guys, there's nothing. I'm lucky I got something from Cunha and Atkinson. There were photos. And sometimes when you get into this, you start, you know, I go to find a grave. That's one of the first places I go to. I know some, a lot of people would know that if they're into this already. And sometimes a path has been worn for you already. There's stuff there. Like, and I can tell if there's something a little there, I'm going to find more. If they went to college, I find more. If they didn't go to college, I find a lot less. That's that's a generality, that's not always true, but that's what I find in in general generalities. I find as I go on. Um, but the other thing is like today I was communicating, I post these stories to your guys' web, your Facebook sites, but like for the 17th Infantry, there's a couple 17th Infantry sites, and I post them on there and I start to talking to a guy, his father was on atsu and he just sent me photos of. His father and a couple of his buddies at a bar with some girl in California prior to the deployment and then training in Mojave prior to them getting pulled. And, and we're talking about sending me more photos. Now, his father survived, but photos from soldiers, to me, set more of an atmosphere for it. A lot of the photos you find, but not all, are posed photos. I mean, I was in the Army, and no offense to the Army, they know how to do propaganda. And they'll pose a photo, the Marines will do it, they'll do but, you know, and sometimes you find real photos like I, I can add, add to. There's just some real combat photos. And you always, I can always tell the combat photos are real ones because the stuff's blurry. It's not in focus because I can tell you from experience when people shoot back at you, you tend to not stick your head up so much. It's just a natural reaction uh, when you went on the two way range. So, I mean, I like that. And when I post the, the things on the, the full three, you know, I'll do the background photo. I usually pick a, a scene from the battle, whether it's Attu or um, I do stuff on the 82nd from Normandy or Market Garden. I put on there um, like I like the 82nd one. I found one guy I started before the D-Day project. I started doing guys from the 82nd who are from Jersey. That's where I grew up. I grew up in Jersey, which is odd for an Alaskan. But I grew up in Jersey. And one guy I did, I started researching and he used to be a chef, a cook. And he used to work at the shore. And then I realized to well, look at the address of this place, this restaurant, it's it's not there, but there's another restaurant right there. I've gone and eaten there. So that's pretty cool. Right on the corner of Belmar by, by the bay, by the river. His his re- He had a restaurant right there and it's still, well, not that is, but it's there's still a restaurant there. And he was in uh, uh, the 325 and they were glider guys back in the day. And this poor guy, he had survived Normandy um, I think he, yeah, I think he just he was in Normandy, survived Market Garden, and it's post um, the Ardennes, and they're they're in the advance into Germany. And he was actually a cook in the army too, but he was also a rifleman at times. And they're, they're road marching down the road, and they're pulling out a a tank, probably an American Sherman, that was knocked out, and they're towing it. And they didn't lock the turret, and the gun swung over and killed him and three guys. So there's a lot of guys, you know, we all think of the guys killed in action or died of wounds and, and we should, but there are a lot of guys killed in training accidents, accidents in general, negligent discharges. Um, there's another thing I did because this research leads to other things. There was a, a vessel, it's a Coast Guard supply ship in World War II and I can't remember the name at the moment, but it was like in late portion of the war, uh, offloading supplies in, in Guadalcanal and there was army stevedores working on, on it, probably another African-American unit, probably. But something happened and there was a massive explosion and killed everybody on board the ship and 60 stevedores and one guy on shore. Some of the officers survived because they were on shore doing some paperwork, but the only two guys from the ship survived. It was the largest Coast Guard ship fatality in its history at one time. And I want to say there's 60 stevedores and 120 some odd coasties that were killed in in, almost an instant, and two guys survived and they were floating on the bow. So that that that's something. I don't know if I'll ever get to to tackle that one because these lists, if you start looking at like the ones for Atu, are pretty long. It's like 500 guys were killed on Atu, and they were buried in two different cemeteries at one time. And that's where I started my list, and um, I, I go from there. Right now, I'm using a book. Written, it was from an article in the Infantry Journal in 1944, and it was all these with guys who fought in 7th ID on Attu, And basically, every name I cross and talk about a guy who was killed, I go and see if I can find that name in the list from uh, one of the cemeteries, and then I try to write a memorial, mm-hmm. at least because you know how I know how he died. Because if you do the research for the infantry guys, you find that um, hospital card for the army guys, and that, that's. I'm not sure how that worked exactly. I can tell you how it works now, and I think it was probably similar. It was a casualty card, probably at battalion aid station, because even now you probably bring the deceased guys to the aid station, and that's probably where it was filled out. And um, it's not much. And it didn't say how he died or what last minute the firefight was. But at least with this some research I have, I, I that one little book, um, I can at least tell the last part of their lives, or um, like I did one recently, a guy named. Uh, Clevese. Clevese, there's a pass on Attu now called Clevese Pass named after him when they tried to retake, they tried to seize this pass in the mountain, which are a pretty significant key terrain in, in Attu. And um, his, he's from Massachusetts. He's an officer, though there's not much on him, but his name, whenever you read anything about Attu, always comes up because it's significant terrain. And him and several other places on Attu are all are named for them. They were killed trying to take these places.
0: I've really enjoyed listening to these stories because um, I I don't know a lot about Alaska. And I think that's the sad part about, you know, the history that we've told. And I really, really appreciate the research that you've done. And hopefully you'll write a book or or we'll get more podcasts out and about well, what well, you're it, doing. It,
1: it, the other thing I'd like to say is other people, I, I, I try to read all these stories. I can't read them all. I, I don't get to them all, but the ones that are posted on Facebook, I try to come back every so many days and read them. And there are people who really, really do some really great research. Um, Lowell Silverman is is one. I'm going to give a shout out to him because I read his stuff, and he's got a website on his uh, father's uh, medical hospital unit. It's, to me, I'm very impressed with that. And the great thing about it, it gives somebody a personal connection because maybe your grandfather, your great uncle, it gives them a connection to it. Um, there's a lot of great stories in there, and other people as well. There's a guy I can't remember his name right now, but he To me, he specializes in bomber equipment, at least he seems to, a lot of his stuff is bomber equipment. And his stuff is, I I realized whole, when I was reading them, I go, oh, I gotta find these serial numbers of these aircraft. And then you get the aircraft reports and I learned more from reading his stuff than than anything else. And then it helped me when I do hit aircraft, look for the Navy Bureau number or Army aircraft, the serial number, and then how to look stuff up. You can get stymied, but ima- if you keep at it, you can find things. So I've, that's what I find interesting. You, you, it's amazing how much of stuff has been paid for us. It's just finding it like even those French websites. I, I speak a little French. It's, it's not very good, and it's not uh, Francais, Francais, as we say. Uh, je parle chiac Francais. But I, I can read it a little bit, and their stuff is very good. Um, sometimes it's a little off in the translations doesn't go well. I mean, the, the, they, they try to honor the soldiers. Um, and it, it, and, it, and, it, and I can tell that and I go in French, it would sound nicer. But in English, it, it gets a little, a little clunky, but anything can get a little clunky. I've used some of their sites too. And there's one um, French site, and it gives a big schematic for the whole airborne portion of Neptune. Um, aircraft layouts, serials, uh, a lot of the pilots in command or the commanders of the flights. I wish I had the chalks, that would be really great. The chalk order, the manifest, that would be really cool too. Same thing for the gliders. I was just really recently doing something with the, uh, one of the glider, uh, the 325 and, and, and their gliders. And like this guy was killed on the sixth, but most of the 325 didn't hit the ground with seven um, for Normandy. And he was obviously to me, he had to be, uh, how do I say this, advanced party. He was probably grabbed, He was. Staff Sergeant, he was probably grabbed with a couple other guys to be extra security for division headquarters or something. And his glider didn't make it, his glider came apart. He was in a horse glider. So it's, and sometimes you have to do supposition and I'm really careful, if, you know, does it make sense? Does it historically make sense? Or was this the common thing? And then I'll use it or, or and I'll state it supposition or some way that this most likely was how it, because sometimes you just don't know. Like the never guys, the guys who jumped in, They might've been killed in a firefight that night, but you don't know, it's not necessarily stated. They might've died in the water. They might've landed in the water in a tree and got shot up. They don't, you just don't know. And that's the problem with infantry things. You just, the guys, the action's too much, too frequent. So you might get something out of a morning report if you have access to that. Mm -hmm. That's not easily found online. I know some people have that stuff and I'm very impressed they do. I live too far away to visit the National Archives. So, and I try to do this as inexpensively as possible. So, I get, I use what I can find. So, and, well, and you know, it's history kind of, to fill in the rest.
0: It's kind of what they did in Alaska. They did what they used, what they could find. You know, they script, they were, you know, fighting with the best they can with a little bit of, you know, supplies they had. So, yes. um, well, we really appreciate the work that you've done. And um, I, Really excited to see more of the stories you have coming out and and what you've been able to accomplish so far is pretty impressive. So um do you have anything else you want to share with us or any
1: I think it's a the project's a great idea. I mean I'm glad I could be a part of it to use some of my knowledge of history and, and I was in the infantry myself, so I have a maybe a soft spot for the infantry soldier, um and and telling history that relates to the public so people can see it's part of their lives it's not just thrown out there it's not just history books can be daunting for some people the text but it involves real people and that's what i try to portray to the public at
0: least i think that's the beauty of what we're trying to do is is make it known to people that the people who died were real individuals Yes. And it's, um, I've read some of your stories and I think you do a really good job of that. So-
1: yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that like, sometimes they get too long, I have to debate <laughs> how far to go.
0: Right. All right, thank you so much for your time. And and uh, if you're interested in learning more about stories behind the stars, then you can go ahead and visit our website or um, check out um, the links in the description. Thank you for listening. If you're at all interested in volunteering, or just want to learn more about our amazing project, please visit us at www.storiesbehindthestars.org.